Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 127 of Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, we've got Greg Bixler joining us. And Dr. Bixler is a professor at The Ohio State University, but he's also a founding member and CEO over at Design Outreach. And the Design Outreach team is a Christian humanitarian engineering nonprofit firm that's dedicated to creating life-sustaining solutions. One of their biggest solutions, the Life Pump, is celebrating its fifth anniversary here on November 13th. And the Life Pump's an innovative hand pump that's designed to last longer and reach deeper than standard hand pumps and help ensure daily access to safe water. And with the help of their donor partners, they've actually transformed 51 communities in eight different countries with plans for 50 additional pumps in 2019. And if you guys want to learn more about that, you'll actually be able to check out a documentary that's releasing on November 13th, the fifth anniversary of the Life Pump. And it's been put together with the help of Mike Edwards, an Emmy Award-winning director here in Columbus. So I really recommend you guys go check that out. But before you do that, check out our interview with Greg. And I definitely think you guys are going to enjoy this episode. And we hope you learn a lot. Before we get to that, I want to take a quick moment, as usual, to thank all the incredible sponsors and supporters here at Conquering Columbus. So I'm going to kick it over to Josh to tell you a little more about our first sponsor, FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest-growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent, through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And our next sponsor is Share. For the rides that you take the most, ride with Share. Share is a new transportation company now driving Columbus. Schedule your ride and Share picks you up at your door with professional drivers and a growing fleet of connected vehicles. Share is now hiring with entry-level management positions available. You can learn more about careers with Share at drivewithshare.com. Finally, if you've ever wondered what it takes to start your own podcast, we're here to help. We're putting together a podcast startup package with our recommendations and some of the key lessons we learned over the past two years of podcasting. You can sign up by heading over to our website, conqueringcolumbus.com. And while you're there, don't forget to give us a like on Facebook and be sure to subscribe and share Conquering Columbus wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet, in any environment, and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. 
Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, we've got Dr. Greg Bixler, and Greg is a PhD and PE. He's a co-founder and CEO of Design Outreach, and Design Outreach focuses on innovative products that improve the lives of the poor and provide better health, education, and employment opportunities. And Design Outreach's current flagship project, the Life Pump, is helping to solve the global water crisis and bring many benefits of reliable water to people across Africa and Haiti. And he also teaches engineering courses at The Ohio State University, including appropriate technology for developing countries. And he started his engineering career at Patel, where he managed interdisciplinary teams of engineers working on a variety of R&D programs. In 2010, he co-founded Design Outreach, and his endeavors have led him to over 18 countries, all while serving as CEO of Design Outreach and resident director for the OSU Service Learning Program, as well as an advisor for the OSU Student Chapter of Engineers Without Borders. And we're really excited to have him on the show today. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Greg. Thanks a lot. It's great to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you here today. And how's your day going so far? So far, so good. Yeah, perfect. Another beautiful day in Columbus. Absolutely. It's a little cold these days. It's finally started, the chills started to catch up on us. But uh, kind of where we like to start, Greg, is kind of kick, kick it back a little bit. And maybe talk a little bit about childhood, growing up through college, and anywhere in between that, that you think you'd want to talk about here on the show. Sure. I, I grew up in uh, just outside of Mansfield, Ohio, and I always liked science and engineering and math type of things, and I didn't know what I wanted to do with that. Um, I thought I wanted to build cars for a living. I, we had a GM plant in Ontario, where I was from, and I thought as, as a kid that it'd be fun to build cars, and I like cars, I like racing, and so forth, but it wasn't until I got to, to college at The Ohio State University, the big city, moving to Columbus about 20 years ago, that I started to see this opportunity that engineers did more than build cars. And, and that's when I was introduced to Battelle and really looking at what research and development looks like and working in different industries and different type of applications. It was very exciting. So you first get to Columbus, you get to Ohio State, you're studying engineering when you get here then, is that correct? Correct, mechanical engineering. Okay, and then you finish your undergrad. Um, did you have a job lined up already, or kind of how does that path unfold for you? I went from interning at Patel as an undergrad student to a full-time job right after graduation. Okay, and, and so you first get to Patel. Uh, you know, what are you what are you doing right away out of uh, like what types of projects are you working on, things like that? It's really there, there's not a typical day when I was working at Patel. Um, things from designing training kits to testing different equipment to um, driving cars to it's just a little bit of everything a lot of variety and I learned a lot it was great on the job experience I got to work with a lot of just really really smart people who um, were great mentors and I took all the things I learned in college and applied them and it was fun because the sky was the limit and time was always of essence but we we got to do some some pretty high-end things you know, it's funny you mentioned applying your what you learned in college because so I was I was a biology major in college. Um, I do not apply anything I learned on a daily basis, uh, but so it must be you know it's it's. I guess what I'm trying to say is that it must be, you know, kind of satisfying to take all that work you put into engineering and then put it to applicable um, purpose. Yeah, and especially neat to actually build stuff, and I think that's one of the things that got me into engineering was just liking to invent, to, you know, playing with Legos type of things, rector sets growing up as a kid. 
and liking to build things that that work and and being able to design things and then send the drawings to the shop and the parts get made and, and then you hold it in your hand and you see hey i made this this was really neat so that's probably one of the most satisfying things as an engineer being able to solve a problem by building something and seeing that that product actually work so it sounds like Battelle was going well for you. You're obviously working on a lot of projects, like you mentioned, that you're satisfied with, and you're growing and developing personally and professionally. Uh, how long do you stay there, and then what does the move look like? How do you know that a move is appropriate for you after that? Yeah, I was there for a few years, and I, I had a, an awesome opportunity to go to Central Asia as part of a missions trip with my church. And the, the trip had nothing to do about engineering, but I saw extreme poverty for the first time in my life. Up to that point in my life, I'd only been to one other country, and that was Canada. And uh, Canada doesn't really count, you know, now that I've been to all these different places. But I really saw how people were living in extreme poverty and, and the opportunity to use occupations and missions, uh, especially as an engineer, and helping to solve some of these underlying issues of poverty. And right around that time, I, I came back from the trip, and, and I remember giving a brown bag lunch to a lot of my colleagues just talking about Central Asia, a place that most people don't visit for fun. And so there's a lot of interest. They were intrigued. And we were showing pictures and talking about stories and, and kind of had this vision of what if we had sort of a, a battelle but focused on problems that people are facing in developing countries, the global south. And, and it was a very popular concept. A lot of my colleagues who are great engineers, great scientists, they love their job, but they saw this, this vision and they said, yeah, I want to be part of that. Um, of course, the, the challenge is, is paying for it. You know, where, where do you get the money, the funding for things like this? But it really sent me down this journey of, of discovery and trying to figure out how can I do this as a, as a living, you know, full time. There's, there's far more issues than I could do as just a volunteer part time. But this group of engineers and I, we, we just started exploring different types of problems that we could tackle. And, and that's when we first started hearing about the water crisis around the world. Yeah, and, and to jump in there, I mean, so with the water crisis, is that something you saw on your trip through Central Asia at all? Uh, or is that more something that, that you kind of tackled later and you heard about more as you continue to research your, your concept? Yeah, it really was not an issue in Central Asia where we were. Um, however, coming back from that trip and, and just starting to ask around, what are some of the problems that we could tackle? Um, one of the connections we made, my father-in-law, He's a pastor at a church here in Columbus. And I asked him, do you know any missionaries who could use engineering help? And I really didn't know what that meant. I just thought maybe there's some connection out there. And, and right around then, I got introduced to uh, a longtime missionary who has worked in Central African Republic for um, his entire life. Grew up there as a kid and then went back as an adult and started learning from him the water problems. And I was, I would say, 99% tile American having no idea what really is going on out there and learned about these issues of these pumps that get put in and within months they're needing repairs and the road systems are terrible there's not a good supply chain pumps are going down and also that that they can't go deep enough so a lot of places the water's deeper but there's not a hand pump option that would go deeper and and as a patel engineer i thought well surely we can do that you know as a country we sent a man to the moon in 1969 and yeah, we can't make a hand pump Heavily debated. six months. Heavily debated. Yeah. Oh, don't, don't get me started on that. Um, but, yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's definitely a huge issue, especially, I mean, clean water is everything, right? I mean, humans are, what, what are we, like 70% water? But there we go. Now I'm applying my biology uh, degree. But, 
No, I mean, obviously, in, in any situation, clean water is a key piece. And I think that, especially in Africa, correct me if I'm wrong, but my studies are coming back to me now, that even if there is water around, a lot of times it's contaminated if it's on the surface or it's a breeding ground for malaria and things like that. So um, it sounds like this, you know, the concept for life pump really solves a couple different issues there. Is that, is that accurate? Absolutely. And I've been to a lot of communities now in a lot of countries and they all have similar challenges. But of course, everybody has to drink water. We can't, we can't just not drink water and survive. So people are drinking water from puddles and streams that you wouldn't want to put your foot in, let alone drink from. And I've seen these slime-covered, highly contaminated, dark, nasty water. And yet people are drinking from there and they're getting things like cholera, they're getting um, diarrheal disease, which is one of the number one killers for kids under the age of five in developing countries. And these are, these are solvable problems. These are nu nuisances for people in rich countries like America. Um, they're life and death for kids in developing countries um, where they just don't have a choice. They have to drink this bad water. And, and it's not just the health, but when you don't have enough volume of water, you can't grow things like a garden. And so you're starving, but yet you can't even grow plants. You can't grow vegetables. You can't grow other crops. Um, a lot of times it's the girls who have to go get water. They're spending hours and hours every day fetching this bad water, and which means that they're not allowed to go to school in many cases. Uh, people are living in, in really um, rickety buildings because they don't have water to even mold homemade bricks. And so when you add water to that equation, all these things go away. And it's amazing the development that you start to see. But the trick is, is having water 100% of the time, which is something I didn't realize and I didn't understand before we got started in all this was that in a lot of cases, and, and this is kind of the majority, pumps break, it's weeks or months before a pump gets fixed. Um, what do you do for a day without water? Let alone a week or a month. It's, it's a tremendous setback. So we, we went in and, and had this vision that we're gonna change the status quo. And we're gonna start with very sound research. We're gonna take a scientific approach to it. We're gonna understand the problem. We're gonna solve the problem. Then we're gonna prove the solution and now what we're in the middle of is advocating the solution. So going to the highest levels of government, I'm going to Malawi here in a week, meeting with members of parliament again, who are very interested in what we're doing and wanting to look at changing national policy, which, which is something that most nonprofits never even try to tackle, let alone are successful with changing policy in, in these countries. So what year does this all start? I mean, you said you came back from that mission trip in Central Asia and then you began to ask around to identify certain issues you could tackle with your background and skill set. Um, had you already begun to go through your PhD at this time, or like how does the rest of your story unfold before Life Hub actually comes to creation? Yeah, great question. So, so I was at Patel, and I, um, when I was at Patel, I had started my master's program at Ohio State, just part-time. So for um, Patel is just a short walk away from Ohio State. It was a great, a great thing. I went on the missions trip while I was in my master's program and I came back and, and I went to my advisor and said, hey, I wanna do something in humanitarian engineering for my master's project. And, and my advisor agreed to that and said, that's great. And so we, we tackled a project, it wasn't the pump, it was a, an oil press um, that took palm fruit and extracted oil, which was a great learning experience, which is code and engineering of it didn't work. And, and we learned a lot about the process of, of this idea of humanitarian engineering or user-centered design. And, and I finished the master's program and 
right around that time just felt a really strong pull to want to get into this work full time. And I saw a lot of this humanitarian engineering work occurring at universities from Ohio State to MIT to Stanford, uh, you know, Colorado School of Mines, several, several universities doing a lot of really great work. And, and at the time, I, I thought my, my meal ticket to be able to teach is to get a PhD. And so that's what drove me back to Ohio State to continue education. And I, I love the academic environment, just the, the enthusiasm from the students and the faculty and so forth. So I went back and and uh, and finished up my my PhD while our family was growing. So this is a, a very unusual path for a lot of people in grad school and stuff. You know, going from a full-time engineering job to a grad school stipend, supporting a family of three, soon to be four. And um, but it worked out wonderfully, and we were able to, to graduate. I, I was able to graduate and really use that experience to. Um, learn how to do research and how to write and how to explain the problems and, and understand the, the issues at hand, very complex issues like the water crisis is an extremely complex problem, but it can be boiled down to some very simple principles. And so that's, that's what it's all about, fixing the right things, knowing what problems to fix versus trying to fix them all. But it was about four years ago I graduated with my PhD and I started teaching full-time at Ohio State while we were growing design outreach into a stage where I could go full-time. And we're philanthropically supported, which means that we have a lot of donors who really believe in this mission and, and see the value and, and have stayed with us through that journey. Um, as, as we're doing research and development, that's a very long and resource-intense process. But in the end, you have something that really works. And, um, and so I was able to transition from teaching full-time to just teaching very part-time where I get to teach a class. Actually, this semester I'm teaching a class that is an engineering service learning course, and we take a group of students to the, to the country of Ghana, which is very exciting. It's going to be my my uh, 20th country, actually. And uh, But then I'm, I'm teaching in the, in the spring another class that I developed on appropriate technology for developing countries, which has been very popular among students, um, especially underrepresented groups in engineering. It's, it's, just, it's really fun to work with students who have this passion and drive to change the world, to um, to use engineering skills in a way that they never thought was possible. So a lot of times when we talk to people on here that have created businesses, there's this gap between the um, idea that they come up with, then how they're actually going to put it into um, practical terms and then execute on it. For you, you understood, you know, what practically needed to be done. You had the research and development, you know, rolling. You knew what the problem was but yet you had to turn this into a company, raise the funds, and then find a way to branch out what you're doing full-time. So how were you able to, and who did you turn to to sit down and start raising funds to make this actually happen? And then what did the R&D process look like? Like, I'm assuming it wasn't just um, all up from there. There's probably some ups and downs throughout that process. Did anything fail that you tried along the way, or how did that look? Yeah, we would say that, that we wanted to fail early and often, so to avoid bigger problems down the road. We started very organically. We we didn't have that that million dollar donation come in the front door and all of a sudden start up everything. It was very entrepreneurial in nature, and it still is. We're still very much entrepreneurial in mindset in engineering and and the, the process that we're going through. Um, but it really started very grassroots, very organically. It started with just some simple conversations with some of my colleagues at Patel, and I said, "What do you think about this? You know, is this is this worth doing?" 
And it's like any great idea. It, it never starts super easy. It, it always takes a champion, takes a group of champions. And we knew that we wanted to do this engineering work, but we knew that we didn't have the expertise ourselves, just a few of us. And so we had to ask um, our friends and colleagues to help out. And right around the same time, this, this organization that I mentioned earlier in Central African Republic that told us about the water crisis, one of their board members um, was connected to me through the founder of that organization, and he works at a Johnson & Johnson company. And he also had a group of engineering friends who wanted to volunteer. So we basically joined forces and said, let's get our friends involved as engineers, and we couldn't even think to afford to pay them. So the next best thing is ask them to volunteer and to inspire them. And it was a really, really neat model because what we had is this group of champions who developed this new hand pump. You know, we started from scratch. We started from researching the very basic levels to actually engineering a product, to actually building it, to actually testing it, and then taking it over to Africa for the first time. And, and through that process, we, we developed this, this new solution, this new hand pump. And, and the next phase was, okay, now we need to pay for a pilot. So we need to build more pumps and get them into the field and pay for plane tickets. And, you know, it's still very volunteer heavy. And what we found was the, the engineering champions, we had a group of like 35 or 40 people that were helping on a consistent basis, that then they stepped up and said, we want to help fund the next step. And so it was a, a really neat thing that happened. And, and it's, it's this building champion model that we didn't know anything about fundraising per se. We just knew that you had needs and you asked people for money. And we've learned a lot since then, obviously. Um, there's, there's lots of resources out there. But what we found is that we, we got owners, people who cared about what we do. So through that, builds momentum. Uh, we had a big break in 2013. We were, we were piloting our first life pumps in Central African Republic. And Central African Republic is one of those countries that when you hear about it, it's always bad news. And in 2013, they had a coup that um, essentially ran everybody out and, and looted our partner's offices. One of their um, staff members got kidnapped at gunpoint. It was, it was a really bad situation. And, and we had started our pilot program there, and we knew that that wasn't going to be a good place to run a pilot program for any sort of hardware that we want to do in the field if we can't even fly into the airport. And so we had a big break where we started talking around different organizations that, that we had similar values and alignment with, and, and we talked with World Vision. World Vision is the, the world's largest Christian humanitarian organization. Um, they, they operate in over 100 countries, and we knew they had the scale power. We always wanted to build technologies, and not just the hand pump, but other technologies in the future, build technologies that were scalable, not just a one-off solution, not just you know one village or one organization or, or one country even, but solutions that could be scaled across dozens of countries, you know, thousands of villages. And, and World Vision heard about what we're doing, and they said, yeah, we're interested, let's talk. And so we flew over to Malawi and met with uh, one of their water managers and, and their team. And right away, it was uh, an instant, yes, we want to try this. So November 13th, 2013, we installed the first life pump in Malawi with World Vision. And the really cool thing is we're coming up on five years now of that pump being installed, and the pump hasn't had a single day without water ever since. And the transformation has just been amazing. I was actually there about six weeks ago with an Emmy Award-winning filmmaker from Columbus. Uh, the Five Stones group, Mike Edwards, went over with me and his cameraman, Danny, and we captured the story. It's just a, an amazing thing. We're going to be sharing the 
it's a short form documentary we're going to be sharing on November 13th publicly. So we're really excited, you know, to have like viewings. We're hoping to have viewings around the country. Um, but it really started very grassroots from an idea and a lot of passion and a lot of cups of coffee at Panera <laughs> all the way through, um, you know, starting to see, you know, like a major supporter like World Vision come along and say, hey, we like this. And so that, that, that first pump in Malawi sparked an interest within World Vision to go into four other countries. So we went from Malawi to Zambia to Kenya to Ethiopia and to Mali. And on all those countries were part of what we called the 100 Pump Project. And so the idea was is we're going to put all these pumps in, and there was going to be a university independent study that would evaluate the pumps. And that really put us on the map. I mean, we're still this really small organization, but we're partnered with this mega organization. And, and it, it gave us a lot of credibility because, like, like I teach my students in the engineering classes of appropriate technology, um, you, you have to solve problems that people think they have, not problems that we think they have. And, and I think what we were doing was solving a problem that they knew they had, which was the depth issue, pumps not being able to go deep enough in a lot of cases, and also the reliability issue. So we weren't trying to sell some widget or gadget, but we were, we, we were coming along and saying, we want to partner with you. We're a fellow nonprofit. We care about the people like you do. We're not here to sell you something. Let us help you. And I, th I think that approach um, worked extremely well. And we have really great relationships with um, the national offices in all these countries because they see us as partners, as not, not as like an outside you know, vendor or something coming in trying to sell something, but as a partner trying to help them be more successful. And you mentioned that, that first life pump, five years, not a single day without water. So how many iterations did it take to get to that pump? And since then, have you made any changes to the life pump, and how many how many do you have installed today? Yeah, we're we're committed to continuous improvement, and I, I think that's a, a very important thing for any engineering project. There's there's a saying to shoot the engineer and ship the product, which means engineers are never actually 100% satisfied, and and at some point, um, you know, it has to go out the door and, and get real use um, and information back, but. Um, Currently, we have about 60 pumps installed in six different countries. Um, we have, and, and that we had just finished this five-year pilot, mm -hmm. um, which was really kind of a, a turning point. We wanted to prove that it could go for five years without maintenance before we started working with other organizations and and building out um, that network, which would take a lot of more resources. Um, we currently have about 65 more pumps in route or in country in. Um, it's going to be in addition to two extra countries, so we'll have eight countries with life pumps and about 115 life pumps, 120 life pumps installed by um, sometime in the spring. Mm -hmm. um, so right now we're we're serving about well, according to the the original installation date data, about 20,000 people now have water because of life pump. Um, the numbers are probably more double that, to be honest. What happens in a lot of cases? A community gets a life pump, other pumps around break, the life pump keeps working. Those communities come to the life pump for water. So we, we might have 40,000 people with water and, and we're just getting started. Um, but that's just uh, representing sort of the tip of the iceberg as, as now we have partners coming to us and saying, hey, we want to fund these ourselves. It's not just our donors supporting this. And, and it allows us to then focus on other R&D efforts like uh, a satellite-based remote sensor that we've been working on in partnership with 
um, an organization called Sunset Solutions, um, an extremely uh, close partner of ours as well. Um, we're looking at other innovations like the automatic, automatic life pump, which is essentially motorizing the manual pump, but allowing a manual backup. So in these rural areas where millions and millions of people live, there's no electricity and solar installations are, are fragile. They're susceptible to vandalism, um, cloud cover. So we wanted to build a system that people would have water 100% of the time. And we have research that shows having water 95% of the year has a lot less impact than having water 100% of the year. So imagine waking up tomorrow in Columbus, Ohio, and your water's not running, and, and you go down to the Olentangy and take water and drink it. We would have a, an epidemic and, and, and health-related issues. And, and that's no different in other countries. You know, People have small uh, degree of uh, immunity towards certain microorganisms, but in a lot of cases, people just don't realize that diarrhea is not normal. They just don't realize that uh, kids frequently die before they turn one. You know, in America, that's not okay. But in other countries, that's the status quo. And, and we're here to change that status quo. What does the cost structure look like for you guys for one of these pumps when you're installing them? You mentioned that you'll have 12 here soon. Is that the right number that I caught? Uh, 120. 120. So, yeah, so I yeah, missed a zero. zero. <laughs> I just deleted that from my brain there for a second. So 120. So, so the cost of installing and getting one out there, do you have an approximate around that? So our, our target price for the pump is about $2,500. That's our target price. That'll require some investment in tooling and some inventory costs. Um, as we're looking to ramp and scale, it's, it's like any manufacturing operation. We have partners um, that we're exploring uh, in order to help us scale that and, and build that production out. We're anticipating much higher volume and numbers. These are all donor-supported pumps, whether it's design outreach donors, whether it's World Vision donors, or anybody in between. These communities are not buying and drilling the wells themselves. They certainly need them. They're in desperate situations, but these are, these are donor-funded pumps. And when done properly, it gives them a tremendous boost to where they can afford to do operations and maintenance. Um, so one of the keys of, of the life pump is that the operations and maintenance cost is about 80% less than other pumps. Other pumps are cheaper up front, but the operations and maintenance cost is so much higher. It actually, that's the reason why the pumps break and no one's there to fix them because they don't have money to fix it. Um, and they have to, they're at the mercy of some organization that is, you know, miles and miles and miles away to send somebody out and, you know, Lord willing, they have money to do it to get it fixed. And so we want to empower the community and, and in order to do that, give them a really great piece of hardware up front made out of stainless steel, heavy duty components that will last five years between any maintenance cycle versus lasting six months. And it means the community that can then afford it. Um, interestingly, uh, you know, every organization has a different number. If you look in gift catalogs and a lot of these uh, leading um, NGOs that do water drilling and implementation, you know, the, the price for a pump will range, you know, if, if you sponsor a pump for a community, it'll range somewhere between, you know, maybe $6,500 and maybe $15,000. And and what that entails is the drilling costs, the community mobilization costs, and so training, talking to the people, explaining the benefits and so forth, all the way through putting in the pump and coming back and making sure that pump's running in a year or two. So this costs vary significantly. And 
and every organization has a different cost structure. Sometimes they're reporting actual numbers, sometimes it's subsidized. Um, so, and sometimes it's very shallow wells, which are a lot cheaper than very deep wells that are more expensive. So in the grand scheme, the life pump is, is a tremendous value and, and organizations are seeing that. And, and what we're doing is, is, you know, advocating to those organizations, you know, basically showing them the evidence and the proof. Um, but also going, like, as I mentioned earlier to the ministries of water, which are the government entities that oversee uh, pump technologies, and then they ultimately make the decision of what technology they want to use in their country. Um, so for them, cost is is the cost of people and impact versus actual money. And you said the Ministry of Water, is that what you called them? The Ministry of Water, yes. So will they then also do the preventative maintenance and things and support these pumps as time goes on, or do they rely back on you, or are you guys training the uh, community members within the places that you're installing them? Yeah, great question. And actually, the model of sustainability looks different in every country. What we do is partner with implementing organizations. So there are a lot of organizations out there who regularly drill wells and put in pumps. And so rather than reinventing the wheel, we partner with their boots on the ground. And and we often go to the field and provide in-country training. So it's the official term is trainer of trainers. So we're training trainers to then replicate the training into others who learn the trade. And, and these are professional pump technicians. So these are nationals in whatever country who are hired by usually NGOs like World Vision, or they could be sort of private contractors where they're, they're a pump technician. The community calls them, asks them to, to come fix a pump, and, and the community pays them directly. And so that's the model that most countries and organizations are trying to move towards because it keeps the the charity out of the equation of, of having to like be the the middleman um, but also it, it it helps to get away from the dependence of the community calling the charity organization to come and fix the pump when the community themselves could raise enough money and fix it you know which makes it much more sustainable uh, because in general donors like to fund new projects and not maintaining existing projects, if that makes sense. Yeah, it almost seems like it makes a lot of sense economically, too, in the sense of you're keeping money in that country, the donation money, through supporting the organizations that are upkeeping these different pumps and things like that. So I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, you guys are at 120 now, which I got that number correct this time. What do you? What does it look like in the next five to 10 years for you guys? We see in, in five years, um, ramping that up to about 1,200 a year at least. The The need for the types of pumps that we're doing is probably at least 6,000 a year, if not more. Every year, about 60,000 hand pumps are installed, and that's mostly sub-Saharan Africa. Um, Just looking at just the depth issue, and this is something that that I haven't mentioned too much, in a lot of cases, um, drillers will go out and try to drill a well, and they're unsuccessful. And what that means is they drill down to a certain depth, and it's the depth in which the standard pumps that they currently use, in most cases, can go to. So it's about 150 feet or so. And they usually stop drilling about there because they know if they go deeper, they don't have a pump that'll work. And so rather than spending more fuel money and, and wear and tear on equipment, they just stop. Depending on, on who you talk to and, and which organizations, and of course the data is scattered, it's not great records and so forth, um, a quarter to a third of the time that occurs. So imagine driving into a village, the village is 
ecstatic that this drill truck showed up. They know exactly what it is. It's the best thing that's ever happened to them. It's like winning the lottery, getting water in their communities, like winning the lottery. And they start drilling and they drill all day and they get down to that certain depth and they don't hit water. Well, that's tremendously disappointing to the community. And, and furthermore, it breaks the relationship between the, the people trying to help and the community. Um, it, it breaks that bond, it breaks that trust. And so you know, the drill truck has to pack up and leave. Well, the issue is that they also probably spent somewhere around $5,000 to drill what we would call a dry borehole. And so that's a, that's a cost of fuel and equipment and personnel and, and so forth that then you have to amortize that in successful wells because donors don't like to pay for dry wells. At least I haven't found one yet. And so, you know, donors only like those ones where kids are happy and water's coming out. And, and this is one of those like hidden costs that people have kind of accepted as the status quo. And, and we found that in many cases, if they can go deeper, say two or three times deeper, which the life pump goes three times deeper than the standard pumps, you're exploring a lot more sub-earth, which means you just have a higher likelihood of hitting water mm-hmm. and hitting, hitting enough water. And, um, and that's really important, even in cases where they hit water, there's a lot of what we call seasonal groundwater variation going on. Um, in the country of Malawi, there's this amazing study that's been going on through the University of Strathclyde in, in, uh, out of Scotland. They've been studying the water points in Malawi, and, and they found something like, um, they've surveyed something like 20,000 water points, and, and they say that, that they don't have any seasonal groundwater variation. So in other words, 12 months a year, there's water. You know, it doesn't say how much water or how good water, it's just there's water. Um, however, during the month of October, right now, it's the middle of the dry season in Malawi. 7,000 water points are dry. So imagine 7,000 times, let's assume 500 people per water point. That's a lot of people without water. And that starts in September and it ends in November. So the seasonal groundwater variation, a lot of communities literally don't have water for three months or at least good water. So now they're walking you know, miles to that slime covered puddle or river um, they don't have enough water you know to plant crops so food is a big problem there, there's all these issues that kind of cascade and so um, being able to go deeper makes a huge difference in um, having a hundred percent uptime which is a change in the status quo um, and, and that's something that's that's a message that we're trying to get out there and, and really hit hard what does that look like statistically? So if I go if I go to normal depth um, and one out of ten times I don't hit water, and I go twice the depth, am I getting it five out of ten? T- or let's say, well, that wouldn't make sense. One, let's say five out of ten times I don't hit water, and then I go double the depth and I go one out of ten. Is that kind of proportion, or are we hitting a hundred percent when we go a certain level? It it really depends on the country. Um, so some places and where we've been in Kenya, for instance, the wells are like. Um, a thousand feet deep or something and, and in that case only electric pumps will, will work in those cases um, in places like where we were in Malawi um, the water is just beyond the depth of the standard pumps that they use there and so in that case the percentage of hitting water is way higher than if you go into like an area in Kenya that's known for extremely deep wells um, so it's really a matter of um, the geography and the geology. The hydrogeology work is is kind of a guessing game. There's there's science behind it. We don't personally get into that. 
but we do know that it's a matter of exploring sub-Earth, and it's a matter of the more you can find, the, the more likely you'll hit more water. So therefore you have enough water for year round water supply. So to answer your question, we don't really, we don't have a hard number on that. There's a lot of data out there suggesting that deeper wells are needed. Um, there's a big call to action with uh, climate change for whatever reason is making water tables drop. And so a lot of water tables that a lot of places where there used to be enough water at a certain depth are now drying up and they have to go deeper. And so there's really no other option. And, and I think we were ahead of our, our time a little bit when we started this whole project like eight years ago, not realizing that this would come to a head like it is now. And, and it's really um, kind of perfect timing of having a solution ready when the world's recognizing this problem. There are obviously no tools in place to measure depth level for um, water before you start drilling or anything like that that they have out there? Or is it just that the cost factor for having those is too expensive? So there's, there's certain tests that can be done to, to know whether there's water at a certain depth. However, it doesn't tell you how much water is there. Um, so you can drill down and it can, we have this thing called uh, refresh rate. So when you drill a well, you're basically drilling a big hole in the ground and the water filters in through the aquifers into that hole. And then you put your pump in the hole and you're pumping the hole dry. And so over the course of the day, water is slowly trickling in or coming in quickly into the borehole and and as you pull the water out as you pump it out it has to replenish itself so in in a lot of cases um, the hydrology work has to be done in such a way that you're not pumping any faster than it was coming in otherwise it runs dry and that's really bad for most pumps to run any pump dry just damages the pump itself so the hydrologists will size the pumps and so forth in order to never run dry. So there's a pumping test that can be done. But but the, the tools that are available currently won't tell us how much water is actually there. So you might drill, you might see there's water down there, and you drill and it's not enough to even put a pump on because it's so small. Um, so the other things they do is they will do exploratory drilling. So basically drilling and trying to understand where the water is for others. Um, and then save those records and compare records between organizations, but the filing systems are not great in many places. And so, and, and records are not properly filed. And so this information is is not readily available. That makes a lot of sense. And, and with light pump, you know, you mentioned it currently goes two or three times deeper than, than a standard pump. Are you guys planning on pushing that boundary even further as time moves forward? I think that um, th there's there's not currently plans on going deeper mm -hmm. per se. Um, there are uh, obviously physical limitations, and and it has to do with uh, the deeper you go, the heavier everything becomes to even install the pump and so forth. But we will continue innovating. That's part of that's that's a big part of our vision, which is creating life-sustaining solutions that alleviate global poverty. And so it's not to build life pumps; it's to create solutions that are scalable and and are solving problems at a time. Um, you know, a key part of that, as I mentioned earlier, is like the, the remote remote sensor. So this is a satellite-based sensor that goes on the pumps that allows us to track when the pump's being used and how much it's being used, which can be a tremendous tool in doing preventive maintenance. So in other words, it's like a check engine light. So we're looking at different things like that. Um, we've been working on a different project called the LifeTap, which is a self-closing water valve that goes on water tanks or pipe stands. 
So as, as we're exploring um, projects to tackle and, and taking to our, our engineering volunteer teams, which we have a lot of engineering volunteers that um, gladly give their time and talents to do this work, we're really our ears to the ground in the field asking what are the biggest problems that, that they feel are the biggest problems. And then we come back here and say, hey, what can we do about this? That's where the life pump started. That's where the satellite sensor came from. That's where the life tap self-closing valve came from. That's where the automated life pump that increases flow rate, but yet has this manual backup. So we want to always be focused on projects and technologies that there's a felt need. And, and not even just focusing on water. Currently, we're, we're in this water space because that's the biggest problem, the foundation of all the problems in developing countries. A lot of it comes back to water. But, but tapping into expertise of our network and things like medical devices and um, food and food, growing food, storing food, um, you know, economic activities to help poor people with jobs and, and be entrepreneurs. So there's lots of opportunities yeah, it might be a deeper pump at some point. That makes a lot of sense. And I think, Greg, that's a good place to kind of pivot towards uh, kind of one of our last questions of the show. And it's centered around, uh, it's centered around the theme of conquering Columbus, which is live uncomfortably. And so what do you think of when you hear the phrase and, and how might you apply it to your life and career? It's a, it's a great phrase. And it's very uncomfortable to leave a comfortable, lucrative easy engineering career and say, hey, I'm going to go back to grad school. I'm going to get a PhD in something. Um, it's very it's very risky and challenging to start something new. And it's something that I would never do differently. It's something that's been incredibly exciting and incredibly impactful just in my family's life, my own personal life, and the people that we're serving around the world. Um, but it takes there's a lot of uncomfortable moments. Um, sometimes it's just a, a matter of are we barking up the wrong tree here? Slash being in countries where there's known issues, known violence, known threats, and, and realizing that's that's where we need to be because that's where the problems are. We have a team in Haiti right now, and, and they had to, to leave a day early because of um, the embassy sending out warnings about planned protests. That's living uncomfortably, but yet our team still went. Um, when Ebola was big in Africa, um, we had trips planned to go over there, and I... I I was asked by different media um, if we were concerned about going to Africa. And and it was like, we're going because that's where the need is. And, and that's living uncomfortably. And ironically, um, that's right around Ebola hit, I think, Cleveland, Ohio, which I was talking to my wife from Malawi, and she had it closer to her than I did. But I think that those big risks are the things that really define us, that I don't want to get to our, the end of life and and look back and, and have um, a lucrative career in something that doesn't matter. Well, Greg, that's a great answer. Thanks a lot for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time to tell your story here on the show. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks a lot. Yeah, and Conquerors, thanks a lot for tuning in. That's Dr. Greg Bixler. He's a professor over at The Ohio State University as well as the CEO and co-founder of Design Outreach, talking about his team's success with the Life Pump and all the things they're doing to help improve situations in impoverished countries. And if you guys want to support Design Outreach, there will be links down in the show notes. You can also check out the upcoming documentary releasing on November 13th. And again, if you guys enjoyed that episode, share it, like us on Facebook, leave a review, and 
Don't forget, tune in next week. Hey, Conquerors, that's it for the episode today. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. If you did, make sure to leave a like. Share us on Facebook with your friends. We really appreciate all your support. And every time you share our podcast or leave a review on iTunes, it really does help us out. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here. And that's going to start with FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent, through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And our next sponsor is Share. For the rides that you take the most, ride with Share. Share is a new transportation company now driving Columbus. Schedule your ride and Share picks you up at your door with professional drivers and a growing fleet of connected vehicles. Share is now hiring with entry-level management positions available. You can learn more about careers with Share at drivewithshare.com. Finally, if you've ever wondered what it takes to start your own podcast, we're here to help. We're putting together a podcast startup package with our recommendations and some of the key lessons we learned over the past two years of podcasting. You can sign up by heading over to our website, conqueringcolumbus.com. And while you're there, don't forget to give us a like on Facebook, and be sure to subscribe and share Conquering Columbus wherever you get your podcasts. You could drop me anywhere on the planet, in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.